invited you to dinner and now we're talking about fasting so this will be fun this will be fun well thanks for joining us um, my name is Alex uh, I am the lesser half of the Cassie Alex combo and uh, we are so grateful for all of you who have come to join us in worship today um, well as we continue through the Sermon on the Mount uh, kind of three reminders that uh, we all want to keep in mind as we go through it First and foremost, that the Sermon on the Mount is not an isolated speech. This is to say that Jesus' life is an exemplification of what his teaching is, and his sermon offers us a commentary on why he's doing the things that he's doing. Second, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' vision cast for what life in the kingdom looks like. So when he is referencing life in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heavens, as it's known throughout Matthew, this is what he's talking about. This is what life in that kingdom looks like. And then finally, following the Sermon on the Mount is a practice in imagination. That is to say that it takes a little bit of creativity. It takes a little bit of imagination for 21st century Christians to follow the teachings of our first century rabbi and that he invites us into that process. Well, over the last couple of weeks, we have been going through Matthew 6. So if you've got your Bible, turn with me there. And this is a short discourse on Jesus's thoughts on performative righteousness. That is to say, he takes aim at any spirituality or any social action that turns it into a performance instead of an authentic expression of our love for God. In the first passage, Amanda helped us understand that in giving to the needy, in our generosity, we should not turn the person we are talking to into a prop for our own publicity, that it is about doing it before the Lord. Then last week, we talked about prayer, and Jesus critiques turning prayer into a transaction, he critiques any posture that sees prayer as getting what I want. It is a collaborative effort. And then today, we kind of reach the final portion of this short discourse, and it is a portion on fasting, which appropriately lines up with the Lenten season. If you're unfamiliar, Lent is this season that the church has um, walked through for thousands of years in which we just take 40 days to prepare our heart for Christ's resurrection at Easter. And so as a community, we have been journeying through what does it look like for us to be a community of repentance, abstinence, and fasting. And appropriately, fasting comes up today, the first Sunday after Ash Wednesday. Now, fasting is an interesting topic for Americans uh, because as Americans, we love our food. I mean, how many of your weekend plans revolved around food of some variety? And if it didn't revolve around barbecue, you are in the wrong city. We love food. Our plans, our schedules, our lives in many ways revolve around mealtime. And as a country, we're known as that country that eats three square meals every single day, and we snack 
all the time, and we have coffee before, and we might in the night with drinks, we are constantly finding little spaces to eat. And in, some, in doing so, this is a good thing, but in many ways, it's also created a sense of excess. We have a food waste problem. Uh, I just, in doing this, I, I realized that we waste about 80 billion pounds of food every single year. That's billion with a B. And that translates to each of us wasting about 230 pounds going straight into the trash. That we gather around food so much that we're throwing away 200 pounds worth of food every single year. But even with our excess, we have a food injustice problem that 42 million Americans, including 13 million children, live in food insecure households. So despite our excess, we have an access problem. And on top of that, unhealthy food is the food subsidized by the government. And so we've created a situation in which the poor simply do not have proper access to healthy foods. This is oftentimes called a food desert in which densely populated urban areas do not have proper access to the right foods. We are a country that has come to believe that appetite and hunger are one and the same but appetite and hunger are not. And then at the very same time, amid our excess of food, we worship an over-sexualized vision of the human body. So take this for example, you go to Trader Joe's or you go to Whole Foods or you're mortal and you go to Hy-Vee and you're there, you're picking up garlic powder and trash bags and somehow cookies end up in the cart. You don't know how, but it just happens. And you approach the checkout line. You approach the checkout line. This is hopefully a familiar thing for many of us. And on the left are the magazines and one Michael B. Jordan shirtless sporting a nine pack abs and then on the right, Snickers and Dr. Pepper. One side, Michael B. Jordan. The other side, Snickers and Dr. Pepper. It's not fair that I'm tempted and shamed at the exact same time. <laughs> that is wrong, but that is our reality. In many ways, we are both tempted and shamed all in one move. This is our reality. Despite all of our food excess, we're constantly reminded of what we don't look like, for we worship a sexualized vision of an unrealistic human body. There's a cacophony of images we see every single day that are a curated definition of beauty. From Instagram to TikTok to your Facebook friends who is trying to get you to buy into that weight loss cult that they've been doing for the last couple years, they're now a fitness trainer. They don't have a degree in anything, but they've watched enough YouTube videos that they've got the gist of it, and now they want you to pay them. No matter where we look, there is this constant reinforcement of the body we don't have. There's this reinforcement that you aren't the shape you're supposed to be. That doesn't mention the fact that this doesn't represent a diversity of ethnicities, of body types, of metabolisms, of genes. It is one curated vision that has gone through filter after filter after filter after filter of makeup, lighting, digital cameras, and oh yeah, Photoshop. 
I'm fairly certain Michael B. Jordan doesn't look like Michael B. Jordan. But that is the vision that is constantly put in front of us. So imagine this tension with me for a moment. On one hand, we live in a culture of food excess. And at the very same time, we live in a culture of body idolatry and body insecurity. We face this tension every single day. And it's no wonder that so many of us struggle with body insecurity images, eating disorders, and eating problems. We are constantly faced with this whiplash. And the reality of body idolatry and food excess is that even though they seem polar opposites, they actually have something very similar in common, and that is the body has become our master. Whether our temptation is towards excess and overeating or towards the over-sexualized vision of the human body, we've created a situation in which our mood, our emotions, our self-worth, our joy, and our happiness are dictated by what we're feeling in a moment. This has propelled, the, the idea that propels these temptations, excuse me, is an underlying force called the pleasure principle. So this is a Freudian thought that basically suggests that we are seeking immediate gratification and the avoidance of pain in order to satisfy biological or psychological needs. It is to do whatever feels good in the moment. Whatever you're feeling at any point in time, that is the right action. For a very long time throughout human history, this was kind of set aside for children and adolescents that, you know, they just have not disciplined themselves enough to resist what's directly in front of them. But more and more and more often, this is becoming the norm. How many of our coworkers, how many of the people we know just can't simply resist doing what's directly in front of them? And part of that is because the message is so often, do what feels good. Our culture stokes the fires of desire. We gratify our immediate desires, but in doing so, we sacrifice our deeper desires. This is to say, to be human is to be a mixed bag of desires. We want the Snickers, we want to look like Michael B. Jordan, but even deeper than both of those things, we want to be physically and emotionally healthy. But can we resist the temptation to do the stronger desire for the deeper desire? For oftentimes, the strongest desire is not our deepest desire. The thing you're experiencing in a moment is not necessarily what you want at your deepest core level. And so as we look at the life of Jesus, I believe that fasting is a practice that can help us refine our desires, to help clarify where we're going. So briefly, I want to sketch out a picture of fasting in the scriptures, starting with Genesis 2. So I believe it will be on the screen, but I'll read it to us as well. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, and there was water, there was watering the whole face of the ground." 
Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord planted a garden in the a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he formed. Um, something that doesn't necessarily translate into our English translations is in the original kind of writing of it in Hebrew, there's this play on words. That term man is Adam, which you would quickly recognize, oh, Adam. But this isn't like Adam, a proper name, but this is Adam, meaning um, like general human. There was a, it wasn't a specific person. It was a general human is the way the author's talking about it. And then all the instances of ground are this Hebrew term, Adama. So Adam came from the Adama, setting up this synchronized relationships between human and earth. The writer tells us that God scoops up the dust of the earth, and breathes his life into it, breathes his spirit into it, creating this reality in which we as humans are both dust and spirit. We are both body, our physical matter realities, but we are this non-matter reality as well that the scriptures consistently speak of as spirit or maybe soul in other places. We are both body and spirit. Not mutually exclusive. We're not a spirit that just happens to have a fleshy car to ride around in. We are both body and spirit in an interconnected way. We need to reclaim this theology of being an interconnected person because for so long, the moment we live in has said, you are simply a body. You are simply a strand of DNA that has little to no purpose other than eat, sleep, be merry, and die. But we've also had a Christian culture in which has said, body bad, spirit good. That everything about your human flesh, fleshiness is to be done away with, to be replaced with a spirit. Heaven is not disembodied spirits. Heaven is flesh and bone. Jesus came and spirit took on flesh and he still resides in the flesh. Throughout the biblical text, body and spirit are seen as one interconnected whole. We don't just throw away our bodies and we don't just treat it like trash. It is who we are. You don't have a body, you are a body. This moment of paradise in which God has formed human beings into his image, he's given them spirit and body melded together, is interrupted. This paradise is interrupted in Genesis 3. Genesis 3 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say... You shall not eat of the tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, a blatant lie. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, 
knowing good and evil. So when when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, notice that she is being tempted by what she sees directly in front of her. And the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Something that as I was doing some study on this that a a pastor out in Portland, John Mark Comer, points out that I've never heard anybody point out, that the fall is deeply connected to food. The entirety of the temptation is, hey, look at that fruit over there. And that whole interchange of the temptation is the woman going, that looks pretty good. I know God told me not to, but it looks pretty good. And she proceeds to eat. And there's something so human about that. There's something so deeply connected to the human condition that we all experience that inability to resist instant gratification. I was hungry, so I ate. The temptation continues to be to to gratify our disordered desires, and then to redefine good and evil for ourselves. The temptation will always be towards instant gratification over long-term obedience. I wanted this particular thing in my life, so I went for it. This is the narrative that we see all the time. I wanted it, so I got it. I wanted it, so I went after it. And no matter how you read Genesis, whether you read it as history or you read it as literary theology, regardless, what is clear is we all have appetites or desires that are out of sync with God's best. That we all have moments in which we realize the feeling in our gut, the thing that we want most is totally out of alignment with what God has designed for us. Or as Ignatius of Leola writes, sin is an unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. It is an unwillingness to trust that his plan is ultimately the deepest desires of my heart. In between those moments, can we resist the temptation towards instant gratification? Can we resist the taking and the eating? This temptation narrative is replayed a few thousand years later in a new place with a new Adam. In Matthew 4, we are told of this story in which Jesus goes into the wilderness. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Understatement of the year. 40 days, 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This story should feel very familiar. And if it does feel familiar, you're reading the Bible well. Matthew is intentionally replaying the Genesis temptation with a new Adam. 
He's replaying this moment, and throughout Paul's theology, Jesus is consistently called the new Adam. For in Jesus, an entirely new human race is being set up. In this story of 40 days and uh, 40 nights of fasting, the tempter shows up, and Jesus, the new Adam, goes toe-to-toe with the tempter from the garden. And at the moment, we think Jesus would be weakest— the moment where he has gone 40 days and 40 nights without food, he proves himself to be strongest. If you've gone a couple hours without food, sometimes you're like, I can't even be a nice person, much less go toe-to-toe with the tempter. But here Jesus is going 40 days and 40 nights without food. And when we would think, oh, he's going to be at his weakest, he, re- he reveals that he is at his strongest. Unlike Adam and Eve, Jesus succeeds in this moment. Unlike you and me, Jesus succeeds in this moment. Where every other human being has failed, Jesus has victory. And he emerges from this wilderness moment declaring that he is establishing a new kingdom. He's establishing a kingdom where we do not have to be mastered by our disordered desires, but that we can be free. Doing whatever you want is not freedom. As it's so often portrayed, freedom is not just being a slave to the appetites of the moment. Being free is mastering your desires enough that you can pursue your deeper desires. If an apple is the thing that tempts me, Being able to, well, that's a weird example because apples are healthy. So if a cheesecake is my deepest temptation, being able to recognize that my deeper desire is for a healthy life, that is what Jesus invites us into, an invitation to pursue our deeper desires in his kingdom. Freedom is not being able to do whatever you want. Freedom is mastery over our disordered desires and moving towards our deepest desires. Again, our strongest desire is not always our deepest. In Jesus' life and in his theology, he sees fasting as an integral part of his life and the life of his disciples because it refines our disordered desires. Um, We'll turn one page over. This is the last place we'll camp, I promise. As Katrina read, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus says, when you fast, not if, not only on the occasion, but when. I believe Jesus sees fasting as an integral part of the life of the disciple. And though he doesn't necessarily command it here, there's a little bit of an assumption. And Jesus isn't necessarily um, talking about forms of fasting that we've understood them as. Um, So we'll often see people say, I'm fasting social media, I'm fasting media, I'm fasting, um, you know, doing particular activities. These things are good. So 
if you take, you know, Alex saying, don't do those things, you're totally missing the point. I think that fasting is specifically going out, going without food for a particular amount of time. It's specifically related to food. Here's what I've found in our pastoral experience. If going without food is just one thing amongst other things, it will be the thing nobody does. If it's listed amongst other things, we will choose to go without watching TV. We will choose to go without our phone. We will choose to go without other things. But we will not choose to skip a meal for Jesus. We would rather throw our phone away because we all want to eat. It's deeply interconnected to who we are. So one of the reasons why I'm so convinced that fasting is specifically food is because it's so easy to just skip over that. It's so easy to go, ah, that doesn't really apply to me. I'm, I'm fasting other things. I would rather us use the term abstain. I'm abstaining from these other things and fasting. And throughout our Lent, like our Lenten guide enc- encourages both both deciding on things you want to abstain from, but also picking times and periods in which you fast or go without food and or drink, excluding water. Please drink your water, people. Do not go 40 days and 40 nights without water because you won't make it and you'll be meeting Jesus long before the rest of us. I believe that fasting, going without food or going without food and drink is an assumed practice of Jesus. As a first century Israelite, he is likely fasting on Tuesdays and Thursdays every single week for the majority of his life. As Scott McKnight observes, the common fast in Judaism was from the evening meal to the next evening meal, skipping food at breakfast and midday. It wasn't heroic, but demanded enough for discomfort. Fasting is not going 40 days without food and drink. It's not that heroic. It's actually what most of us do when we're running late. It's skipping breakfast and skipping lunch. Now, I don't mean to downplay its significance by kind of making it more accessible, but it really is an accessible practice of simply saying, I ate dinner the night before and I'm not eating again until the next day. That's just a 24-hour fasting period. Or there was also a common fast of 12 hours saying, I'm eating dinner and not eating again until lunch the next day. Oftentimes, fasting becomes inaccessible when people are like, I've gone 40 days without eating, and Jesus showed up on the clouds, and look at me now. And the reality is, is that kind of boast is likely what Jesus is talking about in this passage. So he assumes that fasting will be a part of the life of the disciple, but he also expects us to get it wrong. Uh, That should be a little encouraging that Jesus expects us to screw up fasting. He expects us to have a mixed bag of emotions, a mixed bag of desires that some of us will start fasting going, I hope so-and-so takes note of how I'm fasting this time. He recognizes that we oftentimes start something with the wrong motivation. But he's unpersuaded that you should give it up. It's not a let's throw the baby out with the bathwater thing. It's one of those things when you start to fast, 
when you start to engage in the spiritual practices that you are aware of where your heart is, that you take the time to make sure your intentions and your motivations are correct. What Jesus is calling us to is not heroic efforts, but embodied spirituality. A line from Scott McKnight, embodied spirituality. This is to say fasting amongst the spiritual practice plays a really unique role in our lives. It is one of the few spiritual practices that both engages our physical body and our spirit at the exact same time. In many ways, fasting and the hunger pangs we experience align with our spiritual desire for God. And in many ways, fasting creates this spiritual discipline in which both are engaged. Andrew Murray says, fasting helps us express to deepen and to confirm the resolution that we are ready to sacrifice anything, even ourselves, to attain the kingdom of God. We fast to practice an embodied spirituality. We fast in order to see our body and our spirit aligned and unified in a singular hunger, a hunger for God. In the wilderness, Jesus is fasting for 40 days and 40 nights and he goes without food, but he is still energized by the Spirit of God in a particular way that helps him resist the tempter. This is to say that when we fast, we are not left to our own devices, but that in some way, the Spirit infuses us with new energy and a new ability to resist what is going on in our life. The role of fasting in the life of the apprentice. So really quick, three thoughts and then two ways to practice this. Ready? I'm going to fly because we're getting close to the end of the time. Okay, first, fasting allows us to pray more for every hunger pain functions as an alarm bell. Fasting, there's just simply, you kind of create this built-in alarm clock. You know how some people will have like an alarm, it bings every day at 12 p.m. and that's their reminder to pray fasting puts that internally, and every time your stomach makes a noise, that should be just a reminder. Lord, help me where I'm at with what I'm doing. Second, fasting allows us to come into solidarity with the poor. The prophet Isaiah, in his critique of the self-righteous Israelites, wrote, is not this fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and to hide yourself from your own flesh? Fasting puts us in the place of empathy and solidarity with our brothers and sisters globally that suffer from hunger and food insecurity. You get a lot more sympathy when you've got an empty belly. You understand what others are experiencing in a unique way. Fasting helps us come into solidarity with the poor. And third, fasting helps us to clarify our desires. A consistent theme in the Apostle Paul's writing is the conflict between our flesh and our spirit. In his letter to the Galatian church, Paul writes, but I say, walk by the Spirit and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So quick, I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this one. But the church has a long history of misinterpreting Paul's understanding of flesh as the body. Whenever you read flesh, Paul is not talking about the fact that you are flesh and bone. He's not talking about the fact that you have a body that breathes, moves, eats, sleeps. He is talking about a desire deep in us that we all have to do what is contrary to the way of God. Whenever Paul, when we translate it, there's a just a, a misunderstanding that he is not talking about the physical body. He is talking about disordered desires. We all have natural desires for food, for sex, for sleep, for intimacy, for friendships. And we all recognize those ways in which those things can go terribly wrong. We recognize there are ways in which we can pursue those in reckless abandonment and we can do things that are first and foremost about gratification and not our deepest desires. That's what Paul is talking about that we have this ongoing tension in us. We constantly have this temptation, do I gratify what I want right now, or do I choose the way of Christ? Do I choose to follow in his ways? And we all know the discipline and the willpower that it takes to resist our impulses towards instant gratification. And in fasting, we put both our body and our spirit into alignment, and we feed not on food, but on the spirit of God. That in doing so, our desires are clarified. There is a ton of writing throughout church history that I wish I had time to get to on how fasting helps one clarify what is truly their desire that we desire to know God more, not to gratify the desires of our flesh or those disordered desires. There are countless theologians, scholars, authors who just write there's something about fasting that yes, it increases our willpower and it increases our mastery of ourselves, but it also just does something supernatural in which we can resist those temptations all the more. As the worship team joins me back on the stage, fasting is the practice of going without food and drink, excluding water, drink your water, people, for a period of time. In fasting, body and spirit come into harmony, expressing a unified hunger for God and for God alone. So two thoughts, we'll wrap it up. First, pick a day and try it. There is no, like, special technique. This is the simplest that's going to get people. Skip breakfast, skip lunch, call it a fast. I think there is something important about identifying it ahead of time. Let's not be the people who, like, missed breakfast and were like, I was just fasting. <laughs> be intentional about it, folks. Be intentional about setting aside a moment and going, I'm going to not eat breakfast and lunch this day or just breakfast. Set aside a 12-hour or a 24-hour period of not eating and just try it. Let that be a moment in which you can um, spend more time 
in um, prayer. But as your pastor, I want to say this. If you have ever suffered from an eating disorder, if you've ever had a problem with a medical condition, or you just have a complicated relationship with food, I want you to seek counsel from a doctor, a therapist, or a pastor prior to starting. For first and foremost, fasting is not designed to hurt your body. It is a, a practice designed to bring us into an integrated whole. So anything that harms us is contrary to what this practice is. It is designed to bring the body and the soul into alignment. So if that has ever been part of your experience, please do not do this haphazardly because Alex said so. Second, fasting is about freedom, not legalism and not pride. One of the ways to avoid legalism and pride is simply to submit to a community practice of fasting. This is to say, you aren't prideful if you're just doing what everybody else is doing. Doing what everybody else is doing, stepping into the midst of this community, it's hard to brag when everybody else is doing it. When everybody, when everybody else is fasting on Wednesdays and Fridays, there's not much to brag about to yourself. It doesn't do me any good to tell Cassie, hey, did you notice that I went without lunch? She did too. I would suggest one of the ways to avoid pride or legalism in this is just submit to a community version of it. That is a micro church. Maybe you just say, we want to do this together. We want to fast on particular moments together. Ultimately, fasting is about freedom. It is not about creating artificial rules for yourself. It's not about creating a sense of pride in how spiritual you are against everybody else. It is about freedom in Christ. It's about setting our desires straight. It's about submitting ourselves to his lordship and his glory. Thank you.